Welcome to a special edition of the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, where I am going to go down my top 50 games of all time. You heard two weeks ago, numbers 50 through 41 now. To no one's surprise, we're going to do 40 through 31. What? I know, shocking, right? <laughs> Let's introduce who's here. First, I, as always, am Mark, the thoughtfulest of the Thoughtful Gamers. Here with me today is Matt. <laughs> saying boo. We also have Orion. Hey, what's up? We have, again, special guest Ben. The least thoughtful gamer. And my lovely wife, Amber, who is better at podcasting than she said she would be. She was all nervous to do this. Hi, everyone. All right, let's just jump right into it, starting off with number 40, a beautiful, heavy Euro game that I want to play again very soon, Terra Mystica. Nice. It's fair. It's fair. I think this game is fantastic. It's a no-randomness Euro game about building up and transforming the Terra. <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. You're, you're terraforming. You're, you're a race of some kind of fantasy magical creature. People. Yeah, magical people. The mermaids or the fakirs or the giants or the dwarves or halflings, I think. And... Everyone gets one of these races, and you're trying to score points by building up settlements and cities and magic. I can't remember the names there's, of the buildings. There's, a there's like a magic one or a temple, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, and the, and through a variety of ways, you can get points to doing this. Some of the highlights of the games, first of all, how it looks. It's beautiful. And it's um, not so much the art as the components, like the, the wooden components. are. Yeah, there's like an entire Agreed. tree in that box cut up into <laughs> wooden pieces. It's wonderfully heavy when you pick it up. There's just a giant bag of wood. And really, is there anything better in the world than opening up a board game box and just seeing hundreds of wooden pieces? No. It also held the title of best player board for a long time until it was just recently displaced, but it's still amazing. It has an amazing player board. The graphic design is great. The colors in this game are so vibrant. I, I think it's my, really one beautiful. of my favorite things about the physical game is that it just makes so much sense. The, at least the way the player boards are set up. Yeah, the graphic design makes every all the mechanisms make a lot of sense. The iconography is very clear. In that sense, the game is just about flawless. I keep hearing about how this game is flawless, about how pretty the geometric shapes are, and how the lack of randomness makes it elegant and beautiful. But all of those things just make me not want to play it. We've I don't been think trying, I ever will. We've been trying to get Amber to play this game for years. Yeah, literally years. And she refuses, even though I think she would like it a lot. Again, it's that kind of pure Euro style. Some of the highlights is just all the calculation and all the decisions that you make are interesting. It's it's one of those games where you're doing a lot of math in your brain and you're doing a lot of very tight efficiency decisions. Similar to a game, I, I, I see Amber here trying to talk about how this is not her type of game, but remember, Amber... You do like games like Power Grid, which are also entirely math. It may be entirely math, but in Power Grid, at least I feel that I make decisions based on my gut feeling. You can do that in Terra Mystica too. Maybe I'm subconsciously doing math. I don't know, but Terra Mystica doesn't sound like my style. I think you would enjoy it. Anyway, 
So you're making all those great crunchy Euro decisions. You're building up. One of the coolest things about the game is how it incentivizes you through a variety of ways to build close to one another, even though people can then block your spaces. But you want to kind of just build adjacent to everyone all the time to get little bonuses. Well, and I think one, that's really cool. One of the main resources in the game is primarily gained by being having other people build next to you. Yeah, the magic buckets. It, it, the game is the, magic buckets. The power, yeah. They're magic buckets. I don't care what they're called in the rule book. <laughs> they're buckets of magic, and you move little pieces, little purple pieces from magic buckets. Is purple. There's three buckets. Yeah, magic is purple. I, I, there are three buckets, and you just more... move things around buckets. And what could be better than that? I think they're more of bowls. Okay, maybe yeah. they're bowls. Magic bowls. That actually might better. be the technical term that they named them in the Yeah, bowls. it is. I think they're bowls Again, it's of been a power while. in the game. They're bowls, bowls of, power, of power, and power is purple. Another thing this game does well is it gives you, what, 14 unique races, and they all do something significantly different. Yeah, and they all have different all, powers. It all works out. I mean, I think, what, online, if you look, there there are a couple races that are slightly better. but it, it's Actually, it, that's my main criticism of the game is that certain races are substantially better. But but honestly, I don't think you run into that until you're playing really competitive. Um, so You would so run I'm, into it, I think on a very casual level, you would run into it if someone picked like maybe the top one or two or the bottom one or two. Okay, uh, Isn't it more that there's a couple races at the bottom that are significantly worse? There's like two at the, there's two at the bottom that are significantly worse and there's one that's significantly better than the rest. But, but nonetheless, it it does a, a good job of having these races that have very unique special abilities. Um, Absolutely, which, yeah. Which adds tremendously to this this uh, terraforming of the land. Yeah, they all feel different and have their own gameplay, and your towns will tend to look different based on which race you're, you're playing. Yeah, it really shapes your strategy. It's, it's not just a little tweak. They completely shape your strategy and what... Even sometimes the ways you can get points and things like that. And that's part of what makes the game really replayable is that you want to try out all these different races and try different strategies and try getting points through different ways. But at the same time, it's tactical because there are certain ways to get points in each round that are randomized at the beginning of the game. So it kind of it can kind of force you to adapt to this little bit of random element that you have in the setup. I really like it. I would... For a while, it was in my top 10. It's probably fallen a bit since then, but I would put it higher than this. Yeah, we played online for a while really competitively and then all kind of burned out a bit, but I would love to get this to the table and actually play physically again just to because it, it just looks so cool. Yeah, I think it's probably a bit better online since there's not direct player interaction and there's a lot of counting in bits to move around, but it's certainly fun to play on the table. Yeah, another small criticism is that it's because it's so thinky and, and mathematical that it can it can slow down a lot like you could really have to plan out your turns a long time yeah it could be a slow game I, I think one time we played it actually and contemplated having a, a different side game of power grid i believe it was yeah side game that people <laughs> would go and take their turns on when it wasn't their turn in terra mystica so people could think this game i was an advocate linear linearly with player count i think Moving on, speaking of games that are absolutely beautiful, any guesses, not Amber, because she's looking at the list, 
Any guesses what number 39 is? I think you like Viticulture more than this. Yeah, that that was also what I was going to guess, but I, I, I hope that Viticulture is higher up on your list than this. It's not Viticulture. Thank goodness. I'll give you a hint. It's very dreamy. Oh! Mysterium. Mysterium coming in at number 39. <laughs> nice. Another great game like Ticket to Ride for people who don't usually play modern board games. And that's because it's very different from most other games. There's not there's not a lot of point gathering. It, how it works is that one player is a ghost and they have a number, they have this deck of, of dream cards that are these beautiful cards, like large, tall cards of abstract, not abstract, more surreal, surreal, surreal. surrealist art. Surrealist dreamscapes. And what they're trying to do is lead each of the other players to certain murder suspects, weapons, and locations that each of the players are assigned. If you think about the theme too much, it makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) But it sets up a really fun game because basically the other players are limited to a certain number of guesses total that they can make. And the ghost is just handing them silently. They can't... The ghost player can't speak the entire game or give any nonverbal clues they just have to sit there and listen and they hand out these these dreamscapes to people to try to lead them to different cards on on the main table of, of people or places or murder weapons and from such a, a simple premise it's just so much fun yeah i, I will say that um the premise I think is what makes this game so much fun for me because there, it's very similar to Dixit in the, the theme of the game, like beautiful artwork, but there's actually a game to this where Dixit feels very contrived. Yeah. Dix, Dixit's just apples to apples with cool art. This has a game behind it and it has a few other smaller mechanisms that some people I know don't like, but I think they're fine where you kind of guess whether or not your other, other people are right or wrong, and it could give you advantages later on in the game. But the basic premise of getting using this art and these weird images to try to get people to guess, and, ev- and, and, and everyone's working cooperatively, so you can help people and you can try to persuade them out of what they think it is, but you there's kind of a timer on it. I, I don't know. It's just really fun as a casual game experience. I think, like... Um... You called it a party game, which I suppose it is. I think like the best party games, it sets up really just fun situations. Like the the mechanics of uh, trying to convince people because you're working together, uh, you know, but they have the final say on their thing, but you really want to convince them. When when you place those uh, tokens that basically, you're basically wagering on who's right and who's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just really fun. Uh, it, it, it leads to funny banter, and in the surreal world that the game takes place, it's even better. The best part of this game is when one person on the table is convinced that the picture means this, and the other person on the other side of the table is convinced that they're wrong, and you just sit there arguing, and the ghosts, their face just gets more <laughs> and more angry and upset, and they can't say anything, and it's just so much fun. I will say it is so frustrating and so much fun to be the ghost because you get to you get to give these very very abstract clues out 
and they will start out saying, well, maybe it's this, and that's what you were intending. Like, yes, do that! And then someone else talks them out of that, and it's just the, the agony and the ecstasy of listening to people talking about the clues that you're giving. It's, it's amazing. If you have friends who aren't into modern board games, this is absolutely one of the first ones to look at. It's, it's really fun. Okay, moving on to number 38. We have a, another light game. That is not a party game, but it has the word party in the title, and that is Sushi Go Party. I love drafting as a mechanism. I love, I just love drafting. I can't explain it. I love it. You love sushi. I love sushi. I love to make sushi. I love to eat sushi even more than that. And this is the ultimate beginner-friendly drafting game. I, I would highly recommend the party edition because it just adds a like three times as much content you get the main you get the original game when you buy the party yeah you get the original game plus a whole bunch of other stuff that you can vary the game up with it's relative it's really cheap right it's like 15 bucks yeah yeah and i think it's game right i think it's the publisher yeah yeah it is game right it's a local company from around here in the boston metro area i think they're i can't remember exactly what town they're in but they're within you know 50 miles of us what you're doing is the basic drafting premise everyone takes a hand of cards in this case they're all covered with sushi or things that you eat near sushi like wasabi (laughs) or i don't know different types of tempura maybe i don't remember but the sashimi looks really cool yeah they all have little cartoony faces on them it's it's anything sushi or sushi adjacent on these cards and as you would do in a drafting game, you get a hand of cards, you pick one, you pass it to the player next to you. And the the game's very simple. It has very basic interactions like get three of a certain item and it's worth eight points. But if you only have two, it's only worth two points. Very, very simple things like that. But because it's drafting, I think it just creates a really fun, light game. Like it's just... It's just a fun filler game. It takes maybe 20 minutes max, maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Minutes. You make some interesting decisions. They're not difficult decisions, but they're they're all interesting. And you laugh at the funny pictures and you have a good time together. It's it's just that kind of... It's like popcorn. Like, it's just that kind of game. It's going to be fun every time you play it. This is one of the games that I take home for family vacations when I when I uh, go home. I take it on uh, vacations when with my uh, girlfriend's family. I've taught a lot of groups who don't play board games, and they have a grand old time with it. Yeah, another one in that category of games to play with people who don't play board games. Moving on to number 37, we have a classic kind of war yeah, war game, I guess, uh, by Richard Borg, Memoir 44. This is a two-player World War II game, basic hexagon grid map. One player is the, the Nazis, one, or, yeah, I think you're all Nazis in there. I, I think there's a Pacific <laughs> expansion. You oh, really? Play the, yeah, you play the Japanese, oh, or the, there's fantastic. a Mediterranean one for the Italians. Anyway, one side's the Axis, the other one's someone on the Allies during World War II, and you battle it out. And it has, it has such a simple rule set. You get these hand, this hand of cards. It tells you what segments of the map you can activate troops on and move them. And then when you want to attack, you roll some dice. And that's it. 
Like it's so incredibly simple that you would think, and I thought when I read the rules at first that it's just going to be this kind of random luck fest of, oh, you step up next to the person and then you roll some dice and the dice determine your victory. But for some reason, and I don't know if this is perception or I was just wrong in the first place, it doesn't feel like that. It feels so much more strategic than you think it will. Perhaps the um, the thing that elevates it is that it has such good scenarios, and the scenarios are based off of actual battles in World War II. So when you set up a game, uh, you get out the booklet, it has a little historical blurb, mm-hmm. and then you set up the scenario. Um, most of them are pretty balanced. Some of them, like the D-Day landings, are terribly imbalanced. And, uh, you know, you can balance that simply by playing both sides. Yeah, that's that's the real way to play the game is you play yeah. both sides. Yeah. And, and it's so short, it takes 30 to 40 minutes to do one side of a, or to do one play of a scenario, that right. it's perfectly reasonable to, to play both sides, count up your total points and see who wins that way. Yeah. And so when you're playing it, um, although there is a lot of die rolling involved, um, you know, you're jockeying position on a map that feels very re- real. You know, you might, if it's if it's a D-Day uh, board, then, you know, you, you have bunkers, you have trench lines, you know, whatever beach hazards that would have been there. So as you're moving your troops along, jockeying position, even though the actual attacks are played out with die rules, you know, you get advantages by being in the trees or being behind a, a beach uh, hazard. Yeah, and again, it's all very simple. You add one or take away one from your your dice rolls. It's all very easy to understand. It'd be great for kids who are interested in history, for sure, because as Matt said, everything is grounded in actual historical battles from World War II. And despite its simplicity, each battle that you win feels like a hard-fought battle. The winning is so satisfactory in this game. One of my favorite things about this game i think it's the after the the tutorial mission is the first mission where you uh you're the paratroopers landing at saint mariglise and the instructions for the mission tell you uh, as the allied player which it was a it was a paratrooper drop at night onto this little town in france called saint mariglise and they were jumping blind and had no idea um where they were going to land so the the instructions tell you as the allied player to take four uh, American troops in your hand, hold it about a foot above the table, and just drop them onto the table. And wherever the your troopers land is where you set up their, their squads. And just having that completely random element thrown into this game makes it so much more enjoyable. Because it's it's it, it it really reflects what the game or, or what the what the battle was like. Yeah, that that's a great rule in the game. It's hilarious, and one of the things that I think the game is to be commended on is its card system. So many war games try to simulate fog of war and the difficulties in issuing commands to troops, because you can do you can ignore that entirely, and the troops do exactly what you want them to all the time, which is unrealistic but easier to do. There are games that have more complicated fog-of-war command line systems. But in a simple game like this, all that Richard Borg did is give you a hand of cards. And the cards tell you which troops you can activate. 
And so part of it's managing your hand of cards and making sure you're not like getting rid of all of one third of a map out of your hand. And then maybe if you need to move those troops later, you, you won't be able to. It creates this really cool dynamic that simulates in a very basic way this problem with actual warfare without resorting to complicated mechanisms. And, you know, there's a bunch of games around this system. This, it's called Command and, and Colors System. This is, I believe, the simplest one. And I've played one other, but not enough to give it any kind of rating. But I think it's just a brilliant system for an insanely simple war game. The only downside I have for this game is that I don't play it as much as I probably would want to just because it takes forever to set up for a 40-minute game. <laughs> that is true. And so if you do set true. it up, you want to be doing multiple scenarios and make it you know, a bit more involved just to justify the 10 or 15 minutes it takes to get all the pieces out. Moving on to a completely different style of game from Memoir 44, instead of battles and bloodshed, we have just a little bit of exploration and a fantasy, a fun fantasy setting. And this game, number 36, is Above and Below by artist, game designer, publisher extraordinaire Ryan Lockett. I keep saying this, it's a beautiful game. He does, he, he was an, Ryan Lockett was an artist before he designed any board games. And you can see him, I think, even on like old Magic cards and Netrunner cards and doing the art for, I can't remember what board games, but he does a lot of art and he's a fantastic artist. And then one day he's like, well, I just want to design some games as well. So he does everything. He designs he does the graphic design, he does all the art, he publishes it, he has his own publishing company, and the only game of his so far that I've played, which I kickstarted after I heard about it, was Above and Below, and it makes me want to play all the rest of his games. <laughs> it's a fairly simple worker placement game with kind of all the basic things you'll see. You can get more workers, you can get houses that give you bonuses you can gather resources but the main draw of this game is that you can go exploring and in the world of above and below you're you're, you're a group of villagers and you've settled on this new land but you discovered this complicated cave system underneath underneath where you're settling and the most fun part of the game is you can say oh i'm gonna go exploring when you do that you roll a die it tells you on a card based on that die roll what page to turn you to turn to in the exploration book and the person next to you reads a scenario and gives you a choice so you may go underground and you find a giant lake and you see something glistening on the bottom do you want to go dive into the lake and based on who you brought on this exploration how good they're exploring you can choose different options uh, based on their difficulty and then roll some dice and see if your explorers are able to do that and that's how you gather different resources and find even new villagers that you can bring that you can bring up with you to help you out or all kinds of interesting treasures and stuff. This is a game that has really grown on me the more I've played it. I remember the first couple times I played it, it felt so incomplete to me. The stories I thought should have been longer or the goals I was trying to reach weren't attainable. But then the more I played it, the more I was able to do within the time. And the more the stories grew on me and the more the goals made sense. So this is a game that has probably grown higher and higher on my list the more it's played, which is a really good sign for a game, I think. It absolutely has for me, too, because there's a kind of disconnect in the game in that it's a worker placement game and it has all these Euro mechanisms. 
but there's so much randomness involved in the in the exploring because you really very few of the interactions you have give you any kind of indication of what rewards you'll get from the different choices. So when you go to exploring it, you're just kind of fishing for something and hopefully it's it's a resource that helps you out. Sometimes it's fish. Sometimes it's literally fishing for fish. Frequently. <laughs> There's a lot of fish. There's, There's a lot of fish, fish and mushrooms. There's a fish person that you can get and he's awesome. Yeah, there awesome. are fish people. Yeah. For me, it's honestly gone the opposite. It's a fun, light, whimsical game, but I find myself less and less wanting to play it of when we sit down picking a game it would never be my first choice and it feels like it ends about one round too soon yeah that's the main criticism which i guess is kind of a good criticism to have for a game is that you want it to continue more but it does it does cut off like right when you're hitting your stride in the engine if you've done things really well and gotten a little bit lucky and to me i've enjoyed it more when i just kind of let the game happen to me and kind of just give in to the randomness and give in to that because the thematic elements and the art and the story and the fantasy world that Rocket has created with this is just so cool. Yeah. It, it, really, it really goes away from this kind of like Western fantasy worlds that we see a lot of times that are in the last few years that are really gritty and dark and serious and it's just really whimsical. It's more in that kind of Japanese style of, of whimsy when it comes to fantasy universes rather than the Western style. And I, I like that a lot. I think of uh, the silver chair is, oh, is what yeah. it is. What, what it makes me think of is the, you know, a lot oh, the of the Narnia book. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the adventuring is in a cave a blow, but some of the characters are silly in the way that puddle glum is silly. And I think uh, that's completely accurate. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very reminiscent of the sillier side of the Narnia books. Yeah. It's just all very lighthearted, and if you let the game happen to you and let yourself just enjoy that experience, I think it's a fantastic time. It's not a serious strategy game. It has a lot of strategy to it, and the better player is going to win most of the time, but it's not like Tzalkin where the better player is going to win 98% of the time. I, I agree. I think this this is one of the games that I really don't mind losing at. The game is so much more pleasant when you just play it just to play it and to see to see what happens when you explore. Exploring is so much fun, and I I almost wish it was more of a part of the game just because of how much fun it is. Have I told you about Near and Far, Ben? Uh, you've mentioned it. I, I don't know much about it other than that it exists. It's it's in the same world as Above and Below. I cannot wait to get it. I've kickstarted it. It's going to be here in a few weeks, I think. All right. Well, by the time you, the listeners, hear this podcast, we may actually have it. And it's kind of a spiritual successor or sequel to Above and Below, but it's entirely about exploration. That sounds perfect. Like exploring in, across the land, and it's a campaign game. I, I can't wait. Oh, I can't really? wait to play it. Okay. I'm on board. Moving on to number 35, a game I think only Orion and I have played. Oh, no, Matt, I think you played it once. And that is the epic Star Wars miniatures game, Star Wars Armada. By of course Fantasy Flight because they do all the Star Wars stuff. Oof, hands down best models we've ever found. I so much, so they're so cool. Totally worth it just to display them. Although as I look out, we still haven't unpacked them to display them in the new apartment. This is if a I travesty. Knew, we should I mean, we've been here what two months. You should feel bad. <laughs> I I do feel bad now because now I want to pull out those Star Destroyers and look at them because they're so cool. 
it's just cool looking at these ships, but the game behind it is really good. It's way more robust than I than I expected it to be, based on it being kind of a fantasy flight thing with colorful dice and all that. It's it's a tactical fleet battle game, uh, and you set up on across pretty much your whole table, and you move uh, move your ships around with uh, a ruler similar to perhaps Warhammer 40k, but it's much more streamlined and the rules are tight and uh, it's it's great. Yeah, so it's it's a miniatures game in that you collect all these different miniatures. You have a point. Each everything has a point value, and you built you build a fleet based on a certain number of points, and you can build that with the with not only the ships but 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 with also different upgrade cards and captains and pilots and different guns you can put on the ship uh, on your different ships, and then you just battle it out. You have there's a scenario that changes a few of the rules, and it's just the aesthetic pleasure of seeing these ships and fighting with them makes the game so much higher on my list than it otherwise would be because it did it didn't enthuse me enough to actually collect a lot of ships or want to play competitively but as a casual experience just building a fleet and throwing it on a table and then in my case usually usually losing horribly because for some reason I'm really awful at this game more than most games it's just fun the coolest thing about the game is that it's a capital ship game so you're you're using star destroyers and Karelian corvettes and super star or the larger star destroyers i don't know there's a bunch of ships but they're larger capital ships home one the mon calamari ships yeah all the mon calamari ships and they're large ships so what the game does to simulate the weight, I guess, or the size of these ships is just perfect in that you you choose different action focuses on these little dials. But the larger the ship is, the farther ahead in time you have to choose. So if you want to change your speed on a Star Destroyer, you have to basically choose that three turns ahead because it's such a big lumbering ship and it simulates how big these ships are and how hard it is to maneuver them tightly compared to the smaller ones. Also, the bigger ships, depending on the size, they'll have different amounts of turn radius and speed. So the faster they're going, the less or more or less they can turn. And so it, it actually is difficult sometimes to maneuver them around the battle and not collide with other ships or run out of space or things like that, or, or even just keep them in range to fire. Yeah, and, the, and that's, I think, the best thing you can say about this game is that everything just feels right. You're not doing anything with a ship that seems illogical based on the size and type of ship it is. And for for that, I think it's just a great game. The one time I played, I think, uh, was against Orion. And I think you spotted me, like, 20 points or, I don't know, like 10% of the, the build fleet. And that worked really well of balancing it with... Uh, a new player against experienced player, but it just felt great. So I think you, one of us squeaked a victory out in the end, uh, but it, it just, it feels so good playing this as a star Wars fan. Yeah. And it's star Wars. You can't go wrong with that. Moving on to a game that is not star Wars, but going back to history, world war two, like memoir 44, we have a game, another game that I just want to play more and more and dive into triumph and tragedy. This is a three-player game, three players specifically. It, it provides it's one of these like alternate history games where you're 
playing through 1936 through 1946. One player's the communists. One player's the Axis, except for Japan. It's just the Western Front. And the third player is the Western powers, basically. England and, and the U.S. and France. And you're simulating that World War II and pre-World War II time, but it's not... You're not necessarily going to start World War II at the same time or in the same way, or in theory at all. And it's not necessarily going to play out or end the same way. The game presents to you all the same sorts of incentives that these different countries had, and then just lets you roam free with it and kind of create your own World War II history. I played this game for the first time with you guys maybe a couple months ago. And it was it was a fantastic game. I, I was very impressed by the feel of the game um, and the way that the different factions interacted with each other. I, I felt like it felt it was very true to the way that the political climate was back in the forties and the the thirties as well. Yeah, and it's. It's distinct from a lot of war games in that it's not just simulating the war and combat aspects of that time period. Like, it looks kind of like an Axis and Allies board, but instead of just being the war and the combat, it also has a heavy political aspect to it where you're trying to gain influence over different countries, you know, in the, in the Balkans or the, the Netherlands and things like that that can help you get political influence. It also simulates technology with this technology deck. And there are a few different ways to win. You can have economic victories, you can have military victories, or you can develop and drop an atomic bomb and have a, I guess that's a science. It sounds wrong to say that dropping the atomic bomb is a science victory, but I think that's what they call it. Maybe. And that's actually how I won the last game is I, yeah. I was the Western powers and I managed to drop the bomb before the Nazis could take over France, which was going to destroy me and give them the military victory. And I think it's awesome that they have all these different areas in which you're playing, you know, not just again, not just militarily, but politically and with technology. My main criticism of the game so far is that it's a fairly complicated game. Not by war game standards, but by board, you know, modern board game standards. It's a fairly complicated game. It the 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 combat's pretty complicated. There's a whole line of line of control thing that affects economic aspects, but then the science victory mechanism is just so simple. It's a set collection thing basically, and I thought that was kind of a disconnect. I almost wish it was more complicated and more involved. Yeah. It seems just kind of added on at the end. Yes. Yeah. Rather than as robust as the it, rest it, of the it's game. It's not it's not it doesn't feel like it's a part of the game really. It's yeah, it's just... almost like a side mini game you're playing. I really like this game and there's this great feeling of tension when you're trying to figure out how to spend your actions where even I was playing as the Axis powers and even though they have much more industry than the other two almost so as much, much as them more. put together, you still feel uh, stretched on your action there's about 20 things you want to do and you only get to do maybe 12 of those and even though you get to draw tons of these cards you're trying to build more units you're trying to upgrade your units so that so that they're actually experienced and can you know c fight well but then you also need to influence all of europe to get the resources you need to maintain your war effort while not getting too far behind in technology so I, I think it's it's a really great game. I'd love to play it more. Yeah, it's one of the it's a game I just want to dive into and figure it out more. It also has that 
that three-player dynamic that I love. We're going to see more three-player games, at least one more farther up on the list. But I love games that are made for three players. Yes, although it feels like it's almost always going to end up as the axis against the Allies and the Communists. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I mean, it, like I, it has the same historical incentives, so it kind of guides you in the general direction of what happened in history, but it, the details will change. I think also just geographically, you are physically in the middle of the two. And and you're also clearly the most powerful at the beginning, so the other two are incentivized to team up against you. you right, yeah. yeah. Moving on to number 33, we have, going back to science fiction, a game that... Amber's parents actually got me for Christmas that we've just had a great amount of fun with. That is Roll for the Galaxy. Oh, man. Which Ben loves and wishes was probably in my top ten. Yes. <laughs> this is true. I, I like the game. It's it's a really pleasant game. I have a couple of quibbles with it that I actually outlined in my written review at thethoughtfulgamer.com. So I won't go into too much detail here. But it's a quick, like, 30 to 45 minutes once you know what you're doing. Maybe less. Yeah, maybe less than that because it's almost entirely simultaneous action. So it doesn't really matter the player count that much. It's always going to be 30 to 45 minutes or less. And you're rolling bunches of dice. It has, like, 111 dice, and they're tiny, and they're all custom, and they have different fun colors. They look like candy almost, and I don't say that as a negative aspect. I haven't aspect. tried them, but... Yeah, please don't eat the dice. We need to test that for science. <laughs> to test whether or not they taste like candy? For science, Mark. I should coat them in something or you guys aren't looking, and then science will harm you. Anyway, Roll for the Galaxy is a little tableau engine building game, and you're using a bunch of dice to do that. So you roll dice. They give you one of five actions based on what sides face up. You can manipulate them a bit, and then you can settle more planets or colonize planets or build up goods and ship them and you get points and it's fast and fun and you get to roll lots of dice so i mean that it, is it's, it's one of those games that's just like a snack like you just want to keep playing it over and over again and try a new strategy and that's really the main thing is that it's so short yet it offers a lot of interesting decisions that you want to just keep playing it over and over to try out different strategies and different builds I think my favorite part of this game is that you get to roll so many dice. It's just, it feels so good to just take like a dozen dice in your cup and to roll it and then to figure out what you're going to do with your turn. It's also incredibly loud. They give you these plastic. Oh, so loud. They give you these plastic cups and it just makes the dice rolling really loud and annoying to some, I think, but I kind of like it. So cathartic. Moving on to number 32, we have another probably more than any other game on this list, a verified classic of board gaming. And that is Carcassonne, released over, I think released like in 2000 maybe, or in 2002, a long, you know, over 15 years ago, which is long in the world of modern board games. And as soon as I played this game, I realized why it had gained that classic status among so many people. It's incredibly simple. It's a game where you're kind of creating the game as you go. You draw a single tile that's just a square piece of cardboard. You place it on the table, connecting to tiles that are already there. And then you do things. You can build roads, or you can create giant pastures with farmers on them, or you can build cities with the city tiles, and you just get points. And it's a really simple point system. 
and the more I talk about this, the more it sounds boring, but it's not. It is. It's so pleasant. So pleasant. It is overwhelmingly pleasant. That's what I always tell people. It, this game is the epitome of pleasantness in and board elegance. gaming. Really elegantly designed. Yeah, yeah. It took Mark several months to convince me to play, and I loved it the very first time I played it. You're also really, really stinking good at it. I don't think you've. I don't think I've ever beaten you or come even close. You're like a Carcassonne master, Amber. What can I say? I think I had beaten you every time. And then I found out that Amber had also beaten you every time, and I felt less good about myself. <laughs> it's, is that a slam of Mark or Amber? <laughs> I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just bad at it, but I like to think that my wife is a master of the game. This was actually the first modern game that I ever played. And it has aged very well, I would say. It's aged so well. It's it's going to be, of of many, many of these modern games that are coming out, I think it's one of the games that has the highest likelihood of still being played in 100 years. It's, it's just that kind of game. A, a lesser designer maybe would have made the game where you have a handful of tiles and you have to choose from them. But because you just draw one tile and your decision's only where to put it, it makes it that much quicker and simpler without losing, I think, any strategy is if you would have had a choice of tiles. Agreed, yeah. All right. And now moving on to the last game of this entry of my top 50 games of all time, number 31. Drum roll, please. The game that moved Descent way down to number 40, whatever, wherever it was. The re-implementation of Descent... Again, from Fantasy Flight Games, Star Wars Imperial Assault. It's Descent, but it's Star Wars. But not only that, it fixes a couple real problems that were in Descent in terms of gameplay and balance. It, It does a couple little tweaks to the rules, and every single one of those tweaks and those changes makes the game better. Dramatically. Yeah, it... I'll play Descent again, but I would love if I if I got out Descent again, I think I would either first of all I'd download the app, which I've been told improves the game a lot, or find some sort of conversion where they convert Descent to Imperial Assault rules. The complaints about the Descent campaign being imbalanced are well documented, I think, and some of the expansions are notably better on that front. But from the rules perspective, Imperial Assault is a clear improvement. Yeah, it doesn't get rid of the snowballing. That's still an issue. It doesn't get rid of the fact that some scenarios are just horribly imbalanced toward one side, although it didn't seem as bad in our playthrough of a campaign. There was one There's one scenario in particular that was just awful, and a couple others that seemed imbalanced, but I'd say the majority seemed pretty balanced, which is more than we could say for our Descent campaigns. I would say with Imperial Assault, most of them aren't much worse than 60-40, whereas with some of the Descents, they could have been... 80-20 or, or worse. Yeah. But the things it does to improve the game is that in Descent, when it was the good guy's turn, everyone took their turn back to back to back, and then the Overlord took his or her entire turn. In Imperial Assault, you do one character at a time back to back, and that by itself just makes the game so much better. Yeah, you alternate one hero and then one group of Imperials and back and forth until everyone's gone. It makes you think what they were th- trying, like what were they thinking when they designed it originally in Descent? Because the back and forth thing is normal in board games. Why did they go the other way in Descent? 
because it just it's just so much better this way in Imperial Assault. I think Descent was an evolution of an RPG style where the heroes tend to get to go first. Oh, that that's that's and a good Imperial point. Imperial Assault is an evolution of that to make it more of a board game. Yeah, so it doesn't get rid of all the problems in Descent, but it's a really fun, more strategic, dice-chucking, fun time with a campaign, which is always good. And it's Star Wars. And it's Star Wars. We all love Star Wars. Yeah, the Star Wars is really fun. Um, now, I didn't play through a whole campaign, but I will say that this game feels more like a decent game with Star Wars skinned onto it than Star Wars Rebellion and, and some of the other Star Wars games, I think. Don't, don't go back to Rebellion, Matt. Come on. It's a, good, it's, it's a good point, though. I mean, again, it's just Descent except skin Star Wars. I think, for me, a lot of the same criticisms still apply. Like you guys said, it feels kind of RPG-ish. I'd almost just assume have the RPG experience. But those, I don't know, that aside, it still is really fun. And it has all the same benefits that Descent had. Well, and more. Something we haven't really tried is that Imperial Assault has a skirmish mode where instead of doing a campaign, it sets up scenarios for purely tactical miniature play. Yeah, and awesome. I think the rules have been improved enough where I want to try that out and really go into that and see that how good be, of a game that is. That could be really interesting, and that could be that could be huge um, in in my book of raising this significantly. Yeah, we gotta you gotta come over sometime. We gotta try out some of those skirmishes. Skirmish. One dream we've had is having a Star Wars mega campaign where you play a game of rebellion. And then whenever there's a fleet battle, you play a game of Star Wars Armada. And then whenever there's a ground battle, you play a skirmish in Imperial Assault. I mean, you basically play Episode Six, right? You <laughs> yeah, play that's the Battle of Endor. It. You play the second half of Episode Six. Right. It would be incredibly epic and really poor from a gameplay perspective. <laughs> and it would take like four tables. And again, it would just raise the question, why aren't you role-playing? <laughs> I know we're not playing any RPGs right now, Matt, but maybe you should get on that since you like them so much. You've never DM'd. That's not true. I actually have. Just I'm shaming you, you on this podcast. If you want to play RPGs, I want to play them too. I just don't want to spend the time DMing. Matt, if you would like to DM, I would love to play. We should start a new saga campaign. Okay, I'm probably Comment shamed. below if you want Matt to DM an RPG campaign for us. Or if you live in the Boston area and want to DM for us, let us know. Yeah, that too. We'll feed you. Anyway, that concludes another segment, another installment of my top 50 games of all time. We're getting closer and closer to the unequivocal masterpieces at the top of my list. It worked out pretty well looking at the list where around number 20, I stopped having... At round number 20, it became very hard to find cons on my pros and cons list. So we're getting there. We're close to that. And tune in in two weeks to hear numbers 30 through 21. And tune in next week for another normal Thoughtful Gamer podcast, not this little mini-series. As always, you can check us out at the website, thethoughtfulgamer.com, where I actually do most of my content, reviews and such, in writing. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I tweet a lot. I'm getting better at tweeting. I've never tweeted before. And my wife laughs at me because I'm tweeting so much now. 
but you can follow me at Mark, M-A-R-C-T-T-G, or you can follow on Facebook or just subscribe to the, the website itself. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. That helps us get visibility on various lists and things like that. I don't know. I read it somewhere that you're supposed to say that at the end of podcasts. Anyway, until next time, my name is Mark, and thanks for listening in. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.